today that you would cause our hearts to be ready to hear from you and help our lives to be changed as a result. Uh, Lord, guard our hearts and minds from anything that might distract us as we open your word together this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So as we just talked about with Duncan, um, Chantelle and I have recently moved house and uh, it's not an easy process. I'm sure many of you can identify with the joys of finding an agent that you want to work with and uh, then you get around to doing all those jobs that you've been putting off for, in our case, quite some time. Uh, and you're tidying up the guard and just sort of getting things ready and obviously doing lots and lots of cleaning as well. I have to say I don't consider myself to be a particularly messy person. That's not the main characteristic. My parents might disagree from my time at home. But I must admit that even though our house was relatively clean, when we started to look at it through the eyes of a prospective buyer, uh, we noticed that things looked different. So suddenly half of our belongings became clutter that we apparently needed to put into storage. And we noticed all this dirt and dust and marks that we'd never noticed were there before. Uh, there was lots of hard work to be done, but at the end of the day, because we knew that guests were coming through each weekend to have a look at the house, it changed how we lived. Because we were confident that someone was coming, for us that meant that we lived differently in light of what was about to take place. So if you were here last week and you've been following along this, our series on Paul's letter to the Philippians, you might remember that at the end of chapter 3, it ends with this incredible truth in verses 20 to 21. I'll just read that now. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a saviour from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. So there's a statement in those two verses about our identity now in this life, that those people who are in Christ are citizens of heaven, and there is an incredible life-changing hope for the future as well. Just like knowing that the open inspections were coming caused Chantelle and I to live differently, knowing that Jesus is bringing everything under his control and will return to fully establish his kingdom on earth should change the way we live as citizens of heaven on earth. And it's against the backdrop of this glorious hope that we have as citizens of heaven, living under the rule of King Jesus, that Paul begins his final instructions to the Philippians in chapter 4. And he starts with the word therefore because he's about to tell them how their lives should be changed by the truth that he's just shared with them at the end of chapter 3. So the first instruction he gives to them in chapter 4 verse 1 is to stand firm in the Lord in this way. When he says in this way, he's referring back to the example that he's set with his own life, which he's talked about in chapter 3, of counting any earthly confidence or righteousness or status as garbage compared to knowing Christ. He's just told the Philippians, you might remember, to follow his example of pressing on towards the goal of persevering and living for Christ in the face of the full spectrum of sinful behaviour, from strict legalism with the Judaizers to lawless licence with the antinomians. Paul saw the false teachers of his day as enemies of the cross of Christ. And these two errors that he was talking about are at opposite ends of the same spectrum, and yet both are equally dangerous and both of them are still present today. Legalism tells us we can rely on our own goodness and our own righteousness to make us right with God. And license says we're our own masters and we can do whatever we want to do. And there's no consequences because God just has to love us anyway. But after pointing to his own life as the example and warning of those two errors and reminding the Philippians that their identity is actually in Christ and that Jesus will soon return, he's telling them to stand firm now in their life in, in their time as well, despite the errors and the oppositions that they face. And that call to stand firm is for us today too. 
Stand firm is actually a military term. It's something that commanding officers would have told their soldiers to do. And it's a bit like in the movies when you see one of those epic battle scenes. I think we've got a slide we're going to try and uh, show. This is from Lord of the Rings, where you get a, a, a big long line of soldiers and they uh, brace themselves and interlock their shields with one another. So if those soldiers in those, in those lines who are standing firm together don't stand firm, then of course the overall defence will be weakened and gaps will appear as easy targets for the enemy to get in. And eventually the front line will be pushed back and forced to retreat. But if they do stand firm, they're able to withstand enemy attacks and ultimately to succeed even against huge armies. Thanks, guys. You can put the Bible verses back up. Paul knows we cannot stand firm in our own strength, which will always fail at some point. And instead, he calls us to stand firm in the Lord, in his unshakable strength, on his truth as a firm foundation and in the power of the Holy Spirit. In many ways, we're living today in, in what people might call a post-Christian culture. We don't face the exact same kinds of persecution as the early Christians did, at least in Australia. I've never been to prison for my faith or locked up. But increasingly, we are facing ridicule and anger, slander and sometimes even hatred for our faith. There are false teachers today leading people away from the true gospel in search of self-righteousness, health, wealth and earthly happiness at any cost. But Paul's instruction to all of us as believers is to hold our position to follow his example of gospel living, not to have our minds set on earthly things, but to live a life worthy of the gospel as citizens of heaven, looking forward to the heavenly prize that God has set before us in Christ. The victory belongs to King Jesus and we are citizens of his kingdom. So, brothers and sisters, stand firm in the Lord. It's pretty clear as we look at this passage that Paul really loves and cares for the Philippian church. I don't know if you noticed, but he calls them brothers and sisters and then he says he loves and longs for them. And then he calls them his joy and his crown, which is actually a sporting reference. He's talking about the laurel wreath they used to give athletes after they'd won a race. And then he calls them dear friends. So four times in one sentence, he's expressing his love for this group of believers. And before he goes on, he wants to come alongside the church and address a specific problem that could put their ability to stand firm on shaky ground. It's here he gives them the second instruction in this chapter, which is to stand together in unity. So there's a disagreement in the church between these two women, and Paul lovingly addresses this issue in verses 2 to 3 when he says, I plead with Euodia and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women, since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers, whose names are in the book of life. So Paul isn't interested in taking sides or placing blame. He knows these women. They've been frontline warriors with him. They've contended at his side for the cause of the gospel. He's seen their fruit. And he assures the believers in Philippi their names are in the book of life. But we also see that although they're strong Christian women, there is no automatic immunity to disunity. Their feuds affecting the Philippian church. And so Paul pleads equally with both of them to do what he's already asked the church to do, to be of the same mind. You might remember back in, in chapter 2, Paul told them to have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. And then he went on to explain how Jesus took on the form of a servant, dying on the cross, so that we could be made right with God by his grace. It's hard to continue in an unresolved conflict with someone when we are honestly seeking to count others as more significant than ourselves and to follow Christ's example of humility. 
Paul knows it's not healthy for the body of Christ to be divided, and so he asks another trusted person to come alongside these women and act as a peacemaker. And we know that peace is a fruit of the Spirit. So to be a peacemaker isn't a position of weakness. It's not about pretending that the problem isn't there. It's about pointing both parties to God, who is the source of peace. Like the call to stand firm, this call to stand together in unity with the same mind is something that is to be done in the Lord. God is the common ground that unites these two women and unites all of us as believers, and he will always be greater than that which tries to pull us apart. For all of us, the recognition of our own need for humility before a holy God should cause us to be humble and gentle with each other. The names of the people Paul is addressing are in the book of life, which is an incredible reality when you think about it, isn't it? They will one day live in God's presence together. And as Stephen Lawson puts it, those who will spend an eternity in joyful unity and peace ought to start living in it now. So this call to stand together in unity comes after the call to stand firm in the Lord. Over the last six to 12 months at the school I work at, they've been building a brand new state-of-the-art science centre. And if you've ever seen one of these big um, structures go up before, you you know they get these huge slabs of concrete that they use for the walls, and one by one they sort of drop them into place. And when there's one of these things, you know, sitting by itself on the back of a truck or hanging from a crane and sort of blowing in the breeze or even just resting on the foundation, it seems pretty shaky. Uh, But as they are anchored to the foundation and then to one another, the structure becomes incredibly strong and it's basically immovable. The same is true for us. If we remain anchored to the foundation of God's word and remain united with our brothers and sisters in the faith, relying on the spirit that binds us together, we will stand firm and we will stand together. As we read on in chapter 4, verse 4, we come to a sentence uh, which was illustrated by the kids' talk, which was fantastic, that in some ways summarises the book of Philippians. It might seem strange in light of the fact that Paul is actually chained up by the Romans while the church in Philippi is experiencing these negative effects of disunity, but it's so important that Paul repeats himself to make sure they've definitely got it. It's an instruction that if we take it seriously, we'll make us stand out from the world in a way that points people to Jesus while giving us the hope we need to endure the sufferings we face in this life. Paul is deeply invested in the lives of the Philippian believers and he's passionate about their gospel ministry. So his primary instruction in chapter 4, which drives the rest of what he's about to say, is the call to rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. That word rejoice shows up six times in Paul's letter to the Philippians and that theme of joy runs throughout. Rejoicing is something we're supposed to do continually, which Paul emphasises with the word always. We are to always be continually rejoicing. And in whom or what are we to rejoice? In the Lord. So when we think of being joyful, a bit like Jane was saying, we think of happy situations. I didn't think of football, actually, but that's a very good one. Uh, It might be Christmas, Easter Sunday, baptisms, weddings, uh, the birth of a new child. There's lots of good things, and they are good things. But, friends, for this ongoing joy to be possible, this joy in the Lord that we have always, it means that even in the darkest situations and circumstances that we face, there must be a way for us to have joy. It doesn't mean we can never be sad or feel pain or grieve loss. Even Jesus himself experienced those things. But it does mean that in and through difficult circumstances, joy can and should remain. 
The American pastor and theologian John Piper says that Christian, Christian joy is a good feeling in the soul produced by the Holy Spirit as he causes us to see the beauty of Christ in the word and in the world. Often I think the temptation is to find joy in the things that we can see, our family, our house, our car, money, our career, our hobbies, the things that we're good at, and none of those things are bad in and of themselves, but none of them are eternal and unchanging either, and therefore none of them can bring us lasting joy. When Jesus is our ultimate treasure, we have a source of joy that is constant and runs deeper than the joy any earthly thing can possibly supply. That is why we rejoice in the Lord. It's interesting that Paul doesn't say rejoice in the Lord sometimes or rejoice in the Lord when things are going well for you. He says always. And that's impossible from a human standpoint. I know that many times I've felt powerless to obey in this area when things aren't going well. The Bible often gives us instructions that we can't possibly follow in our own strength. Paul wants us to know this lasting joy, but he wants us to know that it is only found in Christ. That the joy our soul longs for comes from God himself as the Holy Spirit causes us to see the beauty of Christ in the word and in the world. If we know this kind of joy, it will impact the rest of our lives and it will show those around us that the God we serve is more powerful than the problems we face. I don't know about you, but it's hard for me to think of problems... It's not hard for me, sorry, to think of problems that are too difficult for me to solve. There are some people who just naturally worry less, but for many people, myself included, when things go wrong or when multiple challenges hit us at once, intellectually we might know that God is in control, but then we start to think, yeah, but what if this or that happens? How will I cope in that situation? What do I need to do to make sure that nothing will go wrong for me here? A few years ago, I was running a small business, and within just a few months of starting the business, I remember I was managing some big jobs with some national clients, and I remember at the time struggling to find any peace and experiencing a very real sense of anxiety. I knew God was in control, but my mind kept focusing on what could go wrong, what might cause me to fail, and what that might mean for my family and I. I'm sure each of us have experienced times like this when we realise that it's not possible to find peace in our own strength. In verses 4 to 6, Paul talks about how we can know peace amidst the troubles we face in this world. He says, Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Do not be anxious about anything. That sounds pretty simple, doesn't it? So why do we find it so difficult? It's because we're caught in the tension of living as citizens of heaven in a world that is marked by the fall. A world that gives us reasons to worry and tempts us to focus on what's in front of our eyes rather than the one who is sovereign over our lives. The word anxiety actually means to be pulled in multiple directions, to have your hopes for the future and your experience of the present fighting within your heart and mind. And the word worry, which obviously is tied to anxiety, comes from an old English word that means to strangle. And if you've ever been seriously worried about something, you'll know that it's, it can feel like it's suffocating and overwhelming you. It seems that it's basically impossible to be continually worried or anxious about something and be joyful and happy at the same time. 
Ongoing anxiety robs us of joy, and it happens when we take our eyes off the true source of our joy. Thankfully, though, God doesn't leave us as his people without a solution. Paul tells us not to be anxious, but in every situation, not just about every situation, but in every situation that causes us to worry. We are to pray and petition God to tell him specifically what we need, what is causing us to be tempted to rely on ourselves instead of on him, and to bring our desires and requests before him. He tells us to do this with thanksgiving, and when we pray like this, honestly, specifically, desperately, humbly and thankfully, it's the thanksgiving part that lifts our eyes from the circumstances we are facing to instead focus on God, who knows what we need and who provides for us. Not only does God know what we need to live each day, but he's provided a way for us to be made right with himself through his son Jesus, who entered into human history, lived a perfect sinless life, suffered and died in our place, bearing the punishment for the sin that separated us from God, and rose from the dead to break the power of death once and for all, so that all who repent and believe in him will one day live with him forever. If you are in Christ, there is so much to be thankful for because the gospel is good news for sinners like you and me. Just before he urges us not to be anxious, Paul reminds us and the Philippians that the Lord is near. If we really believe that God is near to us now and that he is coming again soon to put the world to right in the new heavens and the new earth, which is actually our true home, then there is no need to fear. When my son Asher wakes up crying during the night, providing he hasn't hit himself on something, the crying usually stops once Chantelle or I walk into the room to comfort him, simply because he knows we are near. When we live in the knowledge that God is near, our gentleness, or as some translations like the ESV put it, our reasonableness will be known to all. People who are torn apart by anxiety or strangled by worry are not marked by gentleness or reasonableness. When we cast our anxieties on God, we reflect God's peace in a troubled world. We're not torn in multiple directions or rocked by everything that threatens our earthly comfort because the true Lord and King is near. As one commentator rightly put it, there is no panic in heaven, only plans to work out God's purposes. And the best thing about this instruction not to be anxious is that it comes with a promise. The peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Everything the world can offer us is temporary and broken, but God is perfect, and so are his gifts. Jesus is the Prince of Peace. Peace, joy, and gentleness are fruits of God's Spirit. These, are things, these things are his to give, and he gives them to those who are in Christ and who draw near to him. When Paul talks about this peace that surpasses all understanding, he's not saying it's a nonsensical, naive or ignorant peace. Instead, it's a peace that can't be explained away and it can't be understood apart from Christ. It's a supernatural peace that only God can supply. When you think about it, outside of Christ, there is so much cause for worry and distress. If this life is all there is, then there is a heavy burden for it to go perfectly according to our plan, isn't there? But people who belong to God and whose lives are guarded by God's peace will stand out in a world of worry 
and will point people to the God of peace in whom the peace of God is found. So we're called to stand firm, to stand together in unity, to stand out from the world as people marked by peace amidst trouble. But how do we live in a world that values human autonomy over God's holy standards for living? How do we live lives worthy of the gospel when everything around us seems to be pushing or pulling us in a different direction? Paul says we are to seek out and dwell on the things that point us to God, the things that God approves of. In verse eight and nine, verses 8 and 9, we read, Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you've learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. The world around us is continually trying to live by its own standard. As believers though, as people who were bought with a price, we know that God's standard is the only one worth following. How and what we think about directly affects how we live. Part of our response to God's grace is to live lives that honour him and bring glory to him in increasing measure as he works in our hearts, to live lives worthy of the gospel as he completes his good work in us. With the Holy Spirit's help and Paul's life as the example, he tells the Philippians to think about whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, excellent or praiseworthy. Many of these words reflected virtues of the Hellenistic moralism of, of the day. And so both the Jews and the Gentiles at the time were sort of familiar with these concepts, at least as they were defined by their society. But Paul is saying here that the gospel that he has taught them is the paradigm. It's the lens through which they should determine what is good and true and noble and right and admirable. He's not telling us, us to shut ourselves off into a Christian bubble and only uh, you know, read Christian books or only watch Christian movies or only appreciate Christian art. But he is saying that as we interact with the world, we should find and think about the things that point us to God who is the greatest expression of truth and goodness and who sets the standard for his people to follow. You probably notice that many of the most popular and timeless stories include themes of self-sacrifice, redemption and love, whether they're distinctly Christian stories or not. And that is because we're made in God's image. The desire for these things is built into the fabric of who we are as creatures in God's world. As we focus our attention on the things of which God approves, the result is that our eyes are lifted up to see him and his glory as our ultimate source of lasting joy and peace. The final promise in this section as we follow Paul's example as citizens of heaven by standing firm, standing together, standing out from the world and standing up for those things which glorify, honour and point us to God is that the peace of God will be and already is with us. Earlier on we saw that God is the supplier of our, of our peace when Paul said that the peace of God would be with us. Now he's saying that as we submit to Jesus as Lord and live the life he has called us to, we receive God himself, the source of peace. In other words, we don't just receive the gift, we also receive the giver. Throughout the book of Philippians, Paul shows us that our present reality is not the end of the story. God has begun a good work in us and he will carry it on to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. 
Like the Philippians, those of us who are in Christ are called to stand firm in the Lord and to allow our future hope to shape our lives now and to show the world around us that the true joy and peace that they seek are found in Christ alone. Because we are citizens of heaven, we are to stand firm in the Lord in all circumstances, our lives marked by peace in a troubled world. Because Jesus is reigning, he's near to us now, and he's coming again soon. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that as your people, we are citizens of heaven. We ask that you'll continue to change us to be more like your son as we eagerly await his return. Lord, as we look ahead to the coming week, we ask that your word will continue to work in our hearts. And by your spirit, we ask that you'll enable us to stand firm in the face of opposition, to stand together in love and unity, and that we will know your peace and your joy as we seek to care for our community and to share the good news of Jesus with others. Lord, I pray for any of us here who are struggling with anxiety. May we know your peace that surpasses understanding as we draw near to you in prayer. Please guard our thoughts and help us to live lives that bring glory to you. Amen.